Go ahead and have a seat. Morning, everyone. Uh, there was, uh, I have an announcement to read. Uh, Dan Morgan, the elder that read the announcement this morning, asked me to read this, and I said, sure, I'll read it if you'll preach. And he didn't take me up on it. No, I'm teasing. He's, he said he was going to preach, and then he disappeared. So I'm not sure. he's back there now hiding, I can tell. Uh, there's a, uh, you're invited to the bridal shower in honor of Rhea Hibble on Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. Now, I assume that's only ladies? Yes, okay. Uh, address uh, where Marianne Brown is, you can see her address in, in the, the church newsletter here. Uh, one small request, please shower the bride with your favorite recipe. And there's some more information there. So bridal shower here coming up. Uh, we want to make sure that we announce that. All right. I'm, I'm going to ask you guys a question before we, we jump in here. How many of you would consider yourselves good at praying to God? Anybody? Raise your hand. How many of you have it dialed? Okay, Kelton's got it dialed. You got it dialed, Kelton? Okay, well, anyway, we'll talk about humility here later, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, there was times where I thought that I was a whole lot I don't know, better at that. We'll, we'll talk about that, and that's actually the wrong question, but we'll get to that here in a while. Is there's, we, we, that's something we tend to wrestle with, isn't it? How do we approach this great God that created the world in the state that we are and, and how we are? How do we approach that? And it's kind of different because... When we speak to him, we, he doesn't respond in the same ways that uh, we respond to each other in, in words. Uh, he doesn't respond to us in English necessarily. It's just it's hard to, to know how to, to approach that sometimes. But there is, um, let me show you a couple of um, uh, images here. But this is typically what we think of when we think of prayer, is that we get down and, and we pray to God and we have these powerful moments with God and, and God moves our heart, moves our lives, or, we, or that's what the ideal is. Um, sometimes we, uh, we may we think, you know, maybe we need a, a sign or how, do, how does God respond to, to prayers? And sometimes he responds in all sorts of different ways. This is one that's, this, this picture right here is actually a picture, there's no photoshopping here at all. But uh, when a few years ago I had my my book bag sitting by the window and when the morning sun came in it cast this sunbeam on the on the floor there you see that that's probably the coolest thing i've ever done you know anyway i didn't i didn't plan it or anything like that i just saw this sunbeam on the floor that looked like what montana right and so i took a picture of it and sent started sending it to friends saying hey isn't this cool but um you know there's there's sometimes we approach God and say, God, show me a sign, and we see something like this, and we take it as a sign. I don't know about, about all that. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about that as, as we go along. But we tend to wrestle with prayer. Uh, that's what I find is talking with people and just knowing myself is I find that we as a people, as humans, just tend to wrestle with praying to God and how do we do that and what does that mean. Jesus teaches us how to pray. And there's a lot of instruction and examples in Scripture. But when we ask this question, am I good at praying, we tend to have this mixed response that we just don't know what, how to respond to that. We don't know what to say, except Kelton, who knows he's good at praying, right? But we tend to not know how to respond to that, and we tend to wrestle. So let's take a look this morning at some people who were giants of prayer in Scripture. 
people that we look back on and we say, wow, that, that person was a person who prayed. That person had some stuff together. And so let's walk through a few of these examples. We'll go to Elijah, first of all, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, Elijah is, is an amazing guy, uh, amazing prophet of God in the Old Testament. And he lives in a time where things are difficult, where the kings of Israel are basically saying, we don't want anything to do with God. We're going to chase these other gods. We're going to have human sacrifices. We're going to follow idols. We're going to do all that. And Elijah is standing there saying, no, God is the God that led us out of Egypt. He's done all these amazing things. God has given us this land. We need to serve God. If you look at chapter 18, verses 36 and 37, uh, in the context here, Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel, and they're having, they're having a showdown between the gods is what's happening. Is there are, are all these hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah, they're up there, and there's just Elijah alone by himself. And Elijah says, all right, what, let's tell, tell you what, let's do. Let's make two altars. And we'll pray to our gods, and we may not use fire. We may not light these, things, these altars on fire. And whoever God, whichever God answers, we know that's the one true God. And so there's people around, and the prophets of Baal get up, and they start uh, praying to their God, and they start cutting themselves like they, they did. And they did all sorts of terrible things to try to get this God to recognize that they were praying, and nothing happened. And Elijah, look at what happens here. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And by the mean, in, the, in the meantime, they've poured water on the altar of God and all of that. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And so what happens after that is fire comes down from heaven, devours this altar, and the people say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And as an answer to the prayer, there's this amazing thing that happens. And oftentimes when we talk about this story, I tend to finish here, and I tend to, to leave this story with what this, this amazing way that God has answered this prayer and has devoured this particular sacrifice. But if we continue on to the next chapter, we see something different. We see that Elijah finds himself in a spot where as soon as that whole scene is over on Mount Carmel, the king's wife named Jezebel says, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure you're dead, Elijah, and you are on my hit list. And so Elijah, he, he runs, he's afraid. In verse 3 in chapter 19 it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the, the bush and fell asleep. At once, all at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down. And, and there's this exchange that goes on for a while there. But do you notice how Elijah goes from being on Mount Carmel and being the hero of the day and God using him to do something powerful to running for his life saying, God, I am done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm finished and that's it. I hope that from that example we can look at Elijah and say, boy, Elijah's real. Now, Elijah's, I can relate to that. Maybe I have trouble relating with someone who's courageous enough to stand nose to nose with all these prophets of Baal that are there. 
and be, and be courageous in that situation. But here we've got Elijah running for his life because he's terrified. And I think we can maybe understand that a little better, can't we? We understand something about this prayer warrior. Let's look at another one, Nehemiah. Let's fast forward a few years. Nehemiah chapter 1. And this is a time when the Israelites are, are in captivity. He tells an amazing prayer here. And we won't read through all of it, but in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted before the God of heaven. And so Elijah, excuse me, Nehemiah has heard that one of the, the people that have come back from, from where Jerusalem has been destroyed says the people there are in great distress. Things aren't going very well. The wall has been, has been destroyed and the gates have been burned with fire and things are just not very good there right now. So the first thing that Nehemiah does, who is the cupbearer to this, this uh, king, uh, this Persian king, he prays that God please forgive us of all that we've done. Please help, please work, please do something here. And the next day he goes into Artaxerxes' presence. And Artaxerxes, the king there, notices that he is sad. And Nehemiah says, I've never been sad in the king's presence before. And he said, what's going on, Nehemiah? What's on your heart? And look at verse 4, what happens. It says, the king said to me, what is it you want? As after Nehemiah has told him, the gates of my, the, the city of my forefathers have been burned with fire. Things are bad. It says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So Nehemiah takes some time praying to God beforehand, prays for opportunities, prays that uh, I can have favor in the presence of the king. And he goes into the presence of the king. He's sad, and the king says, What's going on, Nehemiah? And you notice what Nehemiah does is he says a prayer. I don't believe that Nehemiah would have had time to say, All right, king, um, now that you've asked me that, let me take five minutes and go pray over here, okay? Just hold that thought, okay? Let's take a time out, all right? Give me a minute here. I'm going to go over here and pray. And Nehemiah must have said just a silent prayer to himself. As the king asked him this question, maybe he bowed his head something like this, just said, King, here's my situation. Gates have been burned with fire. I want to go back. And what he tells him after the king asks him, What do you want to do? He says, I want to go back and I want to make a difference. I want to go back to my people and I want to help rebuild this wall and I want things to be better. And that's something that I think I can do. Nehemiah is not a biblical scholar. He's a governor. That's what he ends up being as he goes back to Jerusalem. And you see over and over again situations where he finds himself praying. Go look at chapter 4 and verse 9. 4 verse 9. There's some other people in the area don't want this wall to be rebuilt and they're giving them grief. But chapter 4, verse 9, Nehemiah just writes, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard night and day to meet this threat. So he started with prayer and then posted a guard to try to, to keep the city safe. Fast forward to chapter 6, verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. These, these people are trying to intimidate them. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And that's the way the book of Nehemiah goes all the way through, is that whenever Nehemiah finds himself in a situation where things are difficult, his first response is, okay, I'm going to pray. And when you step back and you look at the big picture of Nehemiah, when from chapter 1 when that, that person who was journeying came and said, things are terrible in Jerusalem. 
gates have been burned with fire, everything's, everything's destroyed. To the end of Nehemiah, the wall has been built, morale has been boosted, the people are excited, they come together, they read the book of the law, and they're renewed, spiritually renewed. And Nehemiah, through that whole process, puts prayer first in, in situations. Now, I imagine if we were able to sit here with Nehemiah today, if we had a couple of chairs up here and Nehemiah sat down and, and we were able to talk with him and ask him questions, he would tell you that I didn't feel like I was a giant of prayer. I felt like I was just trying to survive, and that's the only thing I knew how to do. I was just trying to get through this, doing something good for God. And it took a lot of prayer because I didn't know how to do everything that I was called to do. But I decided I was going to approach God in prayer. So I got another one, Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Let's go ahead and turn there. Daniel's in the prophets. Daniel chapter 6. See that Daniel, um, he is he's the, again, is, he's a similar situation to Nehemiah. He's an Israelite that is in captivity somewhere else. He lived um, a little before Nehemiah, right about the same time. But he is in a situation where he has to figure out, what am I supposed to do here? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, God raises him up to be someone that's very prominent in his kingdom. And um, there's some people come to this, this pagan king that Daniel works for and says, Hey, you know, why don't we make a law that nobody can pray to anybody except you? That's the only person we can pray for. And this king says, Huh, sounds like a great idea to me. Okay, let's make this law. And this law is made... And because they know Daniel's habit and Daniel's discipline is that Daniel three times a day would go into his room and he would pray. And look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And so when prayer was outlawed, Daniel went to his room and he quietly did the same thing that he had been doing before. He continued to pray. And you look at Daniel chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel finds himself... And if you look through verse 4 down through verse 19, there's a long prayer that Daniel gives because he is, uh, finds himself in situations where he doesn't know what to do other than he just decides it's time to pray. He has this vision that he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to interpret it. He's wrestling with it. And so what he does is he just submits himself to God and he prays there. Let's look at another one. We see the example of another prayer giant, uh, Jonah. Let's go to Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah's in the prophets just a few pages later. Jonah, chapter chapter 2. Now, Jonah's kind of an amazing guy because he is not the stereotypical spiritual man that we see uh, that, that is a prophet. Um, I don't know if any of them are stereotypical, if we can say it that way. But God tells Jonah, Jonah, what my plan for you, I want you to go and I want you to go and to preach to the people in Nineveh. And Jonah says, sure, God, I'm excited about that. I'll go do that, right? Yeah, not quite. Jonah, if Tarsus is this way, Jonah gets on a ship that's going to take him this way. He's going to go as far away as he can. And notice the book of Jonah never says that Jonah's afraid. Never mentions Jonah's afraid. It doesn't seem to be that Jonah is concerned about, you know, afraid for his own skin. We'll, we'll come back to that. But Jonah goes the opposite direction. So there's this big storm that happens, and the people 
that he had told the people that he was on the ship with that he was running from God. And so they, they have this storm, and they're about to drown, all of them. The ship's about to go under. And Jonah says, my fault, all right? After they cast the lots, he says, my fault. I'm running from God. Throw me over, and everything's going to be okay. They say, we're not going to do that. And Jonah convinces them, you need to throw me overboard, because that's going to save all of you. They throw Jonah overboard, and one of these, these strange, miraculous things of God happens. As this big fish comes and swallows Jonah. And Jonah spends some time. He has some great reflection time there. He spends some time in the belly of the fish, three days and nights. And while Jonah was inside the fish, if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Jonah prays. He submits himself to God, and he says this prayer as he, he reaches out uh, to God there. At the end of chapter 2, Jonah is thrown up on land there. And he, is, uh, he, he goes and he fulfills what God has called him to do, to go and to preach to Nineveh. And as he goes and he shares the message of God, he says, 40 more days and nothing's going to be here. Everything's going to be burned. It's going to be destroyed. And, and the people of Nineveh respond. The king issues a decree that people need to fast, people need to, to reach out to God, because in Jonah's message, he never says, if you repent, God will not bring this destruction. Joseph's message is 40 more days and you're toast. That's what's happening. And so the king of Nineveh responds with humility. The city responds with humility. They repent. And in the meantime, Jonah goes up on the hillside. He's watching. And he sees that the city is not destroyed. And just think about how many of us, if you had the opportunity to speak the message of God to people, and and many of them uh, the whole city turned to God. Do you think you would be happy about it? I think all of us would be. Jonah's not. And the, the reason why, I believe, is Jonah knows the prophecies that the people of Nineveh, the descendants of these people of Nineveh, are going to be the ones that carry off his people into slavery. So he doesn't want to save those people. He doesn't want to, because he's, he's, it, it makes him mad. And look at verse chapter 4. I'll start reading in, in verse 1. But Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong because God did not bring this destruction on, on the people of Nineveh. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This, that what I, I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord... Take away my life, for it is better me to die than to live. Just think about how angry Jonah is there as he's responding and crying out to God. He's got this great frustration. But Jonah is one that is mentioned in Scripture as being one that ultimately had great faith. He was one that, that did the will of God. He wrestled, he struggled, but in the end he did the will of God. And he prayed throughout his whole ministry. We see in, in the Gospels that Jesus is one who prayed. Uh, we're going to look at a few examples just from Luke here. There's a whole lot more that we could look at in G, uh, from, from the life of Jesus. But look at Luke chapter 5, verses 21. Luke chapter 5, oh, excuse me, verse 16 is where I'm going to be at. 21 is, um, talks about the, we're called the, the blessings and woes there. But if you look at um, chapter... Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 16. 
Um, oh, I was in the wrong chapter. That's why I wasn't finding things there. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. See, in, in all the, the, the important things that Jesus had to be doing, in the lack of time that he had, he still continued to withdraw to lonely places so that he could pray. Let's look at the next one there, chapter 6, verse 12. One day, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And we see what happens the next morning. He comes and he makes big decisions. He, the people that are going to be his disciples or his, the twelve apostles, they're going to carry his message out. He comes and appoints them afterwards. So Jesus, before this big decision in life, he goes and he prays. When we go to Luke 22, we see another time here. Luke chapter 22. I'll start reading in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? they asked him. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And so Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he spends some time praying for strength, for, for hopefully that there's another way that all this can pass from him. But at this point in time, it's a different Jesus that we see here, isn't it? It's a Jesus that is showing his own, his own if we can say, the human side, the personal weakness there, that wanting something different to happen than for him to go to the cross and have to take the sins of the world. And so when we look at these examples of these great prayer giants, here's something that we notice. Is that prayer giants in Scripture are not spiritually finished products with a perfect outlook on life that say the perfect words at the perfect moments. Okay? That's not what we see from any of these people. And there's many more that we could have looked at. We could have looked at the Psalms, which are songs and prayers of people bleeding their hearts out to God. But something we see from prayer giants is there are people who often struggle to see the big picture from God's eyes and find themselves frustrated. We see that with these people. We see it with Elijah. We saw it with Jonah. People that are frustrated because they do not see how God is working. And they, they don't think, no, they think they really like it very much. But they're being used by God and see that praying to God is the only real avenue to real solutions. In other words, there are people that wrestle just like you and I, but they decide that boy, I'm going to, the only real solution I have here, what I've been left with, what I have, is that I'm going to pray because there's, there's no other better solution that is here. I've got to pray. And that's really what we see from people who are, who are giants of prayer in Scripture. So here's some things for us to consider. Being prayer giants ourselves. Seek God first. Um, there's times where uh, it, we can... We really miss the point. I really miss the point. When I try to solve all sorts of things myself, and I don't, resor I, I resort to prayer as a last resort, if I can say it that way. Can you relate to that? As I go through life, I'm pushing this, and, and I rely on my, my own abilities or my own self-sufficiency or whatever, and then I find myself at some point in time realizing, boy, no, I really should have been praying for this all along because I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew how this was going to go, and it just flat did not work. And so here I am, 
And here's the last resort. Well, God, now that I've got myself into this, now it's time for me to pray. And we wrestle through uh, times like that. But people who are, are, are prayer giants, we learn along the way that it's important for us to decide that first and foremost, God is going to be the, the one we reach out to. There was a cartoon I saw here a while back that had a... It was, it was one of those, those religious cartoons that's kind of fun to look at that maybe says something in a way that you can't say it any other way. But it had a table and a bunch of church leaders sitting around. And all of them had pistols sitting on the table and all of them looked mad and, and that. And one of the, one of the person, people there said, maybe we should pray about this. And someone else said, has it really come to that? <laughs> you know, and we, that's the point, is that that's, that's backwards. Is, is prayer should be our first, first response and first resort. Think about that uh, just very simply in something in my life that, um, that I've seen this work in a very, very simple way that has helped me a lot. Um, how many of you lose your wallet on occasion? How many of you lose keys on occasion? <laughs> on occasion or on a regular <laughs> occasion like every other day or something like that? Yeah, that happens at our house too. Um, we have... Um, we have one child that this is a daily occurrence of where's my shoes, where's my, you know, that type of thing. Where did you put them? I don't know. Well, I know exactly where you put them, where they're at now, because nobody else moved them. You know, we have those type of discussions. But I find myself, when I lose something, and I don't have time to lose something, getting frustrated, and I run around the house, and all of a sudden, everybody else has to change whatever they're doing because I lost something. Can you relate to that? And all of a sudden, this becomes everybody else's problem. And I, I recognize that. And something I've worked to try to train myself to do is to say, all right, I can't find something, and I really need to find it. So instead of living by sight, I'm going to live by faith here. I'm going to back off, and I'm going to go pray about it to start with. God, this seems very trivial, but I've lost something. And would you please help me find my keys and let me walk through the house and just do this well? And what that does is it calms me down, puts me in a better frame of mind. And you know what happens? I find my keys, usually, find my keys very quickly. And I give that as a, and I give God the credit for answering my prayer. And if I don't find my keys quickly, I give God the credit for teaching me that I need to be patient and not be so concerned with something so small. But it gives me a spiritual perspective. Whereas if I wait till the very end and I walk around the house and I let the anxiety build, I find myself resorting to prayer last. And then I'm praying for, well, I'm, I, I'm sorry that I was, uh, I was more angry than I should have been about losing keys, and I have to pray for all sorts of other things. Whereas if I start and use prayer as a first resort, it works out a whole lot better. So prayer giants, uh, seek God first. We seek God frequently. You see with Jesus... Uh, he says he left, he went to quiet places often in order to pray. Great example for us, uh, seeking God frequently and not just once in a while or when we get in trouble. Um, you think about it in these terms, and this is something when I, I, this dawned on me, it really hit me. Um, how many of you have ever met or shaken hands with the President of the United States? Has anybody ever done that? Okay, not here. Um, I haven't either. Uh, I've seen, uh, I saw a president once when they came to Great Falls and he was surrounded by security guards in a car with thick bulletproof glass and, and, and that. 
Didn't get close. There's no way I could get close. Um, but I know that there was one time a lady from Libby, really persistent, tenacious lady, decided she needed to talk to the president. And during the Reagan era, she called and, and pestered enough until she actually finally got through and had about a minute conversation with him. So it is possible. But whenever we have, we want to visit some type of someone who is important, for just common folk like you and I, we can't just walk into their office and have this conversation. And even if we could, it takes time to be able to drive across town and to do all of that. But just think about this arrangement that we have. With the most important being in the universe, the God who created all of us, all we have to do is simply start speaking and he hears. We don't have to make a special appointment. We don't have to go through six or seven secretaries. We don't have to have certain credentials other than to be a child of God. And and even those that are not child of God, God listens to those prayers to bring him to people who are seeking, to bring them into uh, people, in contact with people so they can become children of God. But just think about the power there and the opportunity that we have. Because we do not have to make an appointment. We can just start speaking and God hears and we can start praying to God. So that should give us uh, hope and reason to approach God frequently. And also... Prayer giants seek God fully. Um, I know that there's uh, a guy uh, uh, told me once that he has, you know, just like we talked about, I have a tendency to only pray when I get in trouble. And, and that's not praying to God fully. It's just praying to God when we get in trouble. But, um, but you see from these examples, like with Jonah, with Elijah, even if they, Jonah really wrestled with God and he struggled with God, but he was giving it his all to pray to God to try to understand this, this situation and predicament that he found himself in. And so this is what we see from prayer giants. Um, prayer is a divine encounter with God that is sometimes polished and prepared and sometimes just raw and real. Both of those we see in Scripture and both of them are right. It's just different at different times. Prayer is a divine encounter with God that is situational and spontaneous. Sometimes there's situations that we come together like we pray and worship, that we, we pray and, and that's planned. And sometimes it's spontaneous because we just don't know what else to do. And we pray to God in those times. Sometimes it's, it's personal, and some, that we just pray, just me and God. And sometimes it's community-wide, that all of us praying together. And neither one, none of those are right and wrong, it's both and. We see prayer in all of those different circumstances. Let's talk about prayer being personal here for just a second. Is sometimes uh, there's there's a because of tradition that that comes down through church history and stuff. Uh, we I remember one time talking with a, a guy who was becoming that he he didn't know that it was not in scripture that you were supposed to fold your hands and bow your head. That was never in scripture. He didn't know that, and he said, "Are you serious? It's not in scripture." I said, "I haven't seen it." And so there's, uh, there's all sorts of postures that we see in Scripture from prayer. That one we don't. It's not wrong. That's just not one that we see. That comes from tradition instead. But uh, all of us, I find, are, that we have some misunderstandings about what it means when we pray or what it looks like. Now, sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes it's us going out in the morning, getting on our knees in a time that's just we're, we're alone and we're there and we're praying to God. Uh, other times... Maybe it looks something like this, where there's some of us that are sitting around and we just we decide that we're going to pray because there's, um, uh, there's something that, that we need to pray for as people. And I recommend that. In the time that you invest with each other, find times to pray together. Um, 
It, it may seem awkward to, to do that in situations if you're not used to it, but it becomes more and more second nature, and God answers those prayers in powerful ways. Maybe prayer looks like this. Um, there was an article I ran into here a while back that talked about how most of the books and articles on prayer were written by people who were academics. And it went through examples of this, academics and introverts. Some That's great, but not all of us are wired that way. And I remember reading that article thinking, wow, maybe there is hope for me. <laughs> maybe my prayers aren't that bad. Because I find that I wasn't one that could sit down for an hour. And I know people like this, and I appreciate them so much. But they'll sit down and they'll pray for an hour and they'll lose themselves in prayer. And they, they just have this tremendous, powerful experience. And that never seems to work. I never seem to be able to pull that off for whatever the way I'm wired. But what I do is that I've looked to try to make things that are common, times that are common and times that are spiritual. Go to 2 Timothy. I'll give you an example here for this concept. 2 Timothy 2. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So the idea there is taking things that are common and make them holy. And you look at this picture here is... There's, this is a place where people do a lot of hiking. There's times where we can make those times holy. Um, I know that when I walk the dog, I've worked to try to make that time a, a time that is more holy than just being something that is walking the dog, but looking around and seeing where God is working around me and, and praying and appreciating nature and having that, that divine encounter with God during those times. So this can be a very spiritual time here if we decide that we're going to make it a spiritual time. Um, now, prayer can look like this. I know that there's... Um, it, it helps, I know for myself, sometimes my kids will talk about how they're afraid to go to school or something like that. And I learned this from somebody else that, that taught me this years ago. I said, all right, well, let's pray about it. And on the way to school or there's times where I've walked to the parking lot and I've just quietly said, all right, let's pray about that. And we'll just say quick prayers. We're walking and not to make a scene, anything like that, but we just, just pray with them. And that's a time that becomes, we're seeking God first and fully. So there's um, important questions we need to ask. Are you good at praying? It's the wrong question. I've learned is that's just the wrong question to ask. The better question to ask is through life, do you connect with God first, frequently, and fully? Do we seek to be connecting with God on a regular basis and talking with Him and making those common times spiritual times? And when we do that, we find that we uh, start asking the question, how can I make my life a divine encounter with God day in, day out? And when we do that, God starts working and He starts answering our prayers in ways that we never dreamed of before. And I pray that as, as a people... We can be a people that seek these divine encounters with God every day. If you'd like to become a Christian or you would like prayers, you're welcome to come forward. And there's elders waiting in the back to pray with you as well if you'd like that. Let's stand and sing together.